1: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. My guest today is Brian Harker, author of Sport and Life, John W. Bubbles, and American Classic, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. John Bubbles was an actor, singer, comedian, and most importantly, a dancer. Born in 1902, Bubbles was an innovator in the jazz tap style and half of the great vaudeville act Buck and Bubbles with his partner, pianist Buck Washington. Bubbles' long career, which largely ended after a stroke in 1967, spanned several significant shifts in American popular entertainment. He started entertaining audiences in vaudeville just as films began to dominate the landscape, followed by television. Harker tells the story of Bubbles' tumultuous life and situates his career as a black dancer within segregated America and an entertainment industry that perpetuated racist stereotypes and exploited its workers, especially those from minoritized communities. Although Bubbles originated the role of sport and life in George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, he has largely slipped out of American memory. Harker restores Bubbles to his rightful place as an innovative dancer and significant presence in 20th century American popular entertainment. It's great to welcome you to the podcast today, Brian.
0: Thank you, Kristen. Really good to be with you.
1: So my first question is just how did you decide to write um, a book about this figure?
0: Oh, well... uh, It was it was a surprise, uh, a big surprise that to me that I ended up doing it. Um, I was actually working on a book about Miles Davis, and uh, well into it, and I just happened to meet this person in a carpool as a part of, and she found out I was a jazz historian, and she said, "Oh, do you know John Bubbles?" And I thought for a moment, and I said, oh, the tap dancer, the you know guy who played sport and life in Porgy and Bess. And she says, yes. She says, my family was instrumental in donating his entire archive to the school where you work at Brigham Young University. And <laughs> I had just a few years earlier written an article about Louis Armstrong and his connection with tap dancers. So I was somewhat primed for this. But it was still going to be a, a huge uh, detour from what I had been doing, so I decided that I would go to the the library at BYU and check out the archive and see if it was something that I wanted to to do something with. And uh, and I, you know, within just a few days, I was totally hooked and immersed. And I put Miles Davis on the shelf and uh, buried myself in everything John Bubbles for the next several years. Um, but it it was definitely out of my comfort zone. I'm not a dancer. Um, I'm not an expert on dance, uh, and so although I had done some scholarship uh, involving tap dancing, I I felt uh, uh, some trepidation getting to this getting into this topic. But it proved to be very very rewarding.
1: Well, it's a fascinating book, and I'm excited to talk more about Bubbles and your work on him. I, You began the book with an anecdote about Bubbles and Fred Astaire, and I thought it was a great opening because it sort of encapsulated a lot of the things that you later talked about, and I thought we, maybe we could start the podcast that way, too. Could you tell that story and why you decided to uh, start the book that way? You know, what does it do for you as an author and biographer?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure so my feeling was most people have uh even even who study show business or jazz or vaudeville may not be familiar with john bubbles he was a hugely influential figure but for various reasons uh, is not well known today and so the first thing i wanted to do was to introduce him and do so in a way that would would let my reader know this guy was important and when it comes to to you know dance, <clears throat> the first thing people, the first person, one of the first people uh, that you're liable to think about is Fred Astaire. So I, I thought, okay, this this story about Bubbles and Fred Astaire will introduce him and also, uh, you know, take us back to a moment in in time in 1930, um, and <clears throat> before Astaire was you know widely famous, but but was still much admired in uh, in the industry, and uh, and so I decided to use this this story um, to sort of set that up and introduce bubbles. And uh, <clears throat> the story goes like this: He was uh, uh, working in New York at the time. Um, he was part of a, 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 one of Lou Leslie's um, all black extravaganzas, uh, Blackbirds of nineteen thirty. And then out of the blue, he gets this call from Fred Astaire. And, and Fred Astaire wants uh, to know if Bubbles will give him a tap lesson. So uh, whenever Bubbles got a business opportunity, as he saw this, you know, he said, call my manager. So Astaire calls his manager. They set it up. The manager says it's going to be $400 an hour. So Astaire... <clears throat> uh, meets Bubbles backstage at the Ziegfeld Theater. They have their lesson. Bubbles gets his $400, goes on his way. Um, And no one knew about this incident for decades. Uh, Astaire never talked about it. And Bubbles didn't talk about it. And um, I think because he didn't want to embarrass his more celebrated colleague, and he felt a little bit self-conscious about bringing it up. But as he got older in his life and in his career, uh, I think he wanted to set the record straight. You know, <laughs> this actually happened. Fred Astaire came to me for help uh, with t- his tap dancing. So uh, I thought that that would be a good way to start the book, introduce who Bubbles was, uh, and indicate how he was regarded by, at the time, probably the most uh, the most celebrated tap dancer in the United States. Uh,
1: so you um, mentioned that he was important. He was important enough that Fred Astaire wanted a lesson from him. But what was important about his dancing? What what contributions did he make?
0: Well, um, I think you can look at Bubbles as sort of the next generation tap dancer after Billbojangles Jangles Robinson. So, Bimbo Jangles Robinson was really the standard bearer uh, for tap dancing of the nineteen tens and tw- and twenties, um, <clears throat> and and he was about twenty five years older than Bubbles. Bubbles comes along, and uh, in the early nineteen twenties, he's trying to distinguish himself as a dancer. Um, and shortly after he arrives in New York from uh, his home in Louisville, uh, he. <clears throat> has this experience at the Hoofers Club in Harlem, um, where he goes in and he, he does some steps and and the, the senior dancers there laugh him out of the club and humiliate him. And he, uh, this is how, how he, he tells the story. And then he goes on, on the road uh, for a year and a half or so, comes back, and in that time, he was determined that he would come back to New York and show them all, you know, and put them in their place and establish himself as uh an up-and-comer <clears throat> and that's what he does he he comes up with something new we don't know what it was uh, <laughs> we don't know you know what dance or what step or whatever uh but <clears throat> he says that when he went back to the hoovers club after this tour that um that he was able to um uh you know shame his detractors and and show them that he was you know uh, he was a uh, an innovative dancer, an original dancer. And it appears that in the years following, um, he, is, he built a reputation as someone who had complicated the art of tap dance in a way that Esther really, or excuse me, <laughs> Robinson really had not. Robinson's approach was, you know, perfection. It was clean. It was uh, uh, mesmerizing, but but it was, it was fairly simple in, in terms of the kinds of steps, the techniques that he used. Uh, Bubbles, again, to distinguish himself, uh, and, and again, we're not sure exactly how fast this happened or exactly when, but, but sometime in the mid-1920s, um, <clears throat> in response to this competition, he, uh, he developed new, more audacious, faster, more complex and swinging steps Uh, this was a idiom of tap dance that really fit more with the jazz music that was coming of age at the same time and so and and from then on and starting in the 1930s you get all these young black dancers coming to new york city and they want to copy bubbles and and so he's generally regarded as as the dancer who you know picked up the torch from bill robinson and carried it into the next the next uh, generation, um, and sort of defined tap dancing in its in its jazz uh, incarnation as opposed to more ragtime-based uh, style.
1: So sort of looming over the whole biography is something you've already mentioned a couple times, and that's his historical erasure that, you know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people know who Bojangles Robinson was, even, you know, as long as they have some familiarity with vaudeville, for instance, but I had never heard of Bubbles, for instance, and I study vaudeville. So um, can you talk a little bit about how or why you think that historical erasure happened?
0: Yeah. <sighs> Um, Well, yeah, it it is interesting because he was he was uh, pretty well known in the 30s and 40s, you know, his his vaudeville career uh, craters. And then he has this comeback in television and based on news reports, you know, he was fairly well known in the in the late 50s, 60s and so forth. But uh, but then after his stroke, he again sort of fell back into obscurity and the the thing that i see is that bubbles although he made a few he played bit parts in a few films he never had the opportunity to really star in a in a film a, a hollywood film that was uh, that that became you know important and valued in our cultural heritage so that it would be played over and over and over um and uh, that's really <laughs> you know, how we know about, about dancers from this time is mostly uh, is their role in, uh, in Hollywood. If they didn't have a role in Hollywood, they were only in vaudeville, how are we gonna know about them? Uh, it's very, very difficult. And, and uh, so that's my take is that he just never quite made it uh, to a level of prominence in film that would give him immortality. So that today we can go on YouTube Yes, we can go on YouTube and find short clips of him, but not not career defining roles that would put him on the cultural landscape um, in the way that, you know, people like Ele- Eleanor Powell or Fred Astaire or or Bojangles Robinson um, were able to do. Uh, so that's my theory anyway.
1: Um Maybe we should back up a little bit now. We've sort of talked about some overviews here, um, but Bubbles was not alone in his career. For 36 years, he was part of a vaudeville act, and um, I think you've done a pretty good job of figuring out what that act was like, considering, as you said, they really don't have that kind of filmed um, evidence that we have for some other um, uh, vaudeville performers. So can you describe the act, talk about Buck mm-hmm. and uh, sort of how they got together? Sort of give us a sense of what their vaudeville performance was like.
0: Yeah. So they got together as child performers in 1917. Uh, Bubbles and his family had just moved to Louisville from Indianapolis. And, uh, and, and, <clears throat> uh, at that time although bubbles had had been uh, uh performing in black vaudeville in uh in nashville um in louisville in indianapolis um when he came back in 1917 to, to louisville um for for whatever reason uh he was not able to continue in black vaudeville my feeling is it was probably due to world war world war one and the effects that that had on the black entertainment industry, um, but in any case, he he ended up doing a lot more kind of odd jobs during this time, and he met Buck Washington, uh, who would turn out to be his partner, uh, as they were both pin boys at a at a bowling alley. He found out that Buck Washington was a fantastic pianist. Um, all I mean, he he'd been taught by his father, but otherwise, you know, he was self self-taught and basically absorbing music orally just completely by ear did not read music um and and neither did Bubbles read music and so they got together Buck would be the pianist Bubbles would be the singer and the dancer um <clears throat> and they began performing in Louisville not again not in vaudeville uh but uh, in these various kinds of more sort of casual settings they'd Perform in hotel ballrooms, or they perform in people's private homes, or they were performing in the back of uh, of trucks at, at the the Louisville Fair, um, and uh, and they they began putting together an act, and eventually they got their big break and went to New York. Um, and we know from news accounts, and there are quite a quite a few um, uh, that are accessible these days through uh, fully Digitized and searchable databases, you can find lots and lots of of reports of their performances, and they were they were kind of a um, they were a versatile group. Okay, so Buck was a, a tremendously gifted pianist, uh, very virtuosic. Um, he could bring in classical elements into his playing, combine that with jazz, and uh, and so he very facile and fluid and um and gifted as as a sort of just an entertaining pianist and then you got bubbles who who was the virtuoso tap dancer but he also sang um, and so they would sing songs together and then uh and then uh, bubbles would start uh, tap dancing while buck accompanied him and then bubbles would sit down at the piano and buck would get up and he would do a dance parody. He he would do a, a funny dance, basically, and and bubbles would do some rudimentary accompaniment on the piano. So they switch roles that way, um, and then in interspersed into all of this, they had this constant comic banter. Um, that was that was uh, <clears throat> would have probably been. A little bit uncomfortable for today's audiences to to listen to because it was almost all based on racial stereotypes and uh, jokes <clears throat> that uh, uh, made fun of the black culture and so forth. But nevertheless, they were they were beloved as comedians as well. So they they had this you know this whole whole shtick that that they would you know um, serve up in their vaudeville uh, per- performance. Very, you know, varied and diversified um, with lots and lots going on. And they became very popular. Um, It's kind of, I guess, in a sense, too bad that they began to sort of hit their crest uh, right when vaudeville was starting to decline in the late 1920s. Um, And then by 1932, um, when uh, the Palace Theatre stopped showing um, vaudeville uh, and movies kind of seemed to sort of take take vaudeville's place. A lot of vaudevillians had to leave the industry. Buck and Bubbles were one of the few teams that were able to keep going for another twenty years um, after vaudeville had apparently died. Right? Uh, I mean, it, it was still a it was still a, a barely viable uh, entertainment medium in comparison to the other options. But Buck and Bubbles were so popular uh, that again they were able to keep going all the way till. 1953, really, when finally their partnership and uh, their role in vaudeville came to an end.
1: Um, what did they wear for, for their performances?
0: Um, in the early days, they mostly wore, uh, well, and even into, into the 30s. I mean, you do see, I was going to say, you do see photos of them in top hats and, you know, tuxes and so forth. But that wasn't their typical attire. Um, in in a typical vaudeville performance, they wore clothes that were like clown clothes. Um, Buck, in particular, wore big long shoes, um, and they wore uh, sh- uh, pants that were too short and uh, jackets that were too long, <laughs> so that so that they looked mismatched and um, sort of the opposite of you know a polished uh, erudite entertainer they wanted to give this impression of, of being almost hobos, you know, when they would come on the stage. Um, and that was, that was their kind of their standard, uh, their, their standard wardrobe. But again, occasionally they would also gussy up and and put on a tux.
1: Um, well, you have described sort of what they're wearing and, and what they did. And as you said, the humor they were using in um, in their sort of comic banter was kind of rooted in the racial stereotypes of minstrelsy. And I think for me, one of the hardest things to understand and to help people in the 21st century to understand is why that kind of humor was not just popular among white audiences, which I think we can understand a little bit more easily, but was actually quite popular among black audiences. And I thought you had one of the more uh, persuasive <laughs> explanations for why minstrelsy was also popular in black communities. Can you talk about that, please?
0: Yeah. Okay. So initially, minstrelsy in the in the 19th century, <clears throat> it was a you know before the Civil War, it was a, mostly an all white phenomenon where you have white performers blacking up, uh, with the burnt cork and going out on stage and, do, and doing songs and dances that, um, uh, that, uh, tapped into what they conceived as slave entertainment. And, uh, <clears throat> and then after, well, excuse me, after the civil war, um, now it's possible for, uh, black entertainers to get in on the act but that was the only act in town it's like if we want to be a part of this we have to capitulate to the demands of the of the industry we have to basically black up ourselves and go through this sort of self-mockery um, and and uh, and so it was a you know initially a, a very demeaning thing and I, I think that that demeaning character never really went away however there also came this point late in the uh, 19th century early 20th century um where there's this recognition you've got you know black actors and white actors in minstrelsy and who was more effective, who was more entertaining uh, well audiences started turning more and more toward these the the black uh, actors and uh, be- and partly because the white actors were going into moving into vaudeville and that transition was taking place. Um, but there was this sense that, the black actors were more authentic, um, you know, and 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 entertainers felt that, audiences felt that, and th- so the, the you know people that were um, uh, uh, working in um, uh, minstrelsy or indeed vaudeville because they shared a lot of the same kinds of um, kinds of tropes, uh, if they were black, they would they would want to advertise that. We're the real deal. We are genuine black comics, right? Um, And so you've got uh, Bert Williams and George Walker, who build themselves as two real coons. Now we, you know, sort of uh, recoil at that, but that was the language of the day, and that was the way they felt that they could, that they could um, promote themselves. We're the real thing, and so in that sense, minstrelsy also. While you know, while at the same time being demeaning, it was also a source of pride. It was like this is our this is our music. This is these are our dances, and and we're executing them and performing them in a in a sort of a genuine manner. Is that what you were referring to?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the idea also that Mistral um, C became for black communities not about the stereotypes and the sort of degrading part of it but could also be um an expression of black cultural production right that tap dancing was growing out of black communities and black performers and that jazz the same ragtime the same right so it's it it sort of um that's the part that the black press and presumably black audiences were drawn to and they and not uh, and they recognize sort of what's a stereotype and what's not right and kind of what to ignore and what to really celebrate as uh, seeing the incredible skill that these performers um were were showing on stage right yeah absolutely so um one of the sort of out- outcomes of this sort of minstrelized um, entertainment landscape was Porgy and Bass, right? The great opera by um, George Gershwin, which I think today lots and lots of people see as problematic in a lot of ways for, for I think, for good reason. Um, and, uh, Bubbles, was, Gershwin actually reached out, as you say, and asked Bubbles to play sport in life, was one of the major roles. And um, I wondered, you know, tell us about that experience. You know, did did he think it was problematic? Did, you know, what kind of how did he approach uh, that experience? And, and, and what was it like for him?
0: Right. Well, um, he didn't talk about ever feeling that was problematic and and bubbles later in life when he gave interviews um he rarely spoke of of um feeling exploited racially uh or at least you know in a direct way he would he would sort of under the table kind of kind of share stories or incidents that think okay that yeah that's that's what he's talking about Um, and and clearly he would you know, racism was a huge part of his, his life and his consciousness. However, um, he had, you know, he'd grown up in an era where you don't talk about those things in polite company. It's not a good idea. And if you want to get a job, you definitely don't want to look like you're complaining about the way you're being treated. And so he, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't, to my knowledge, he, he didn't ever um, talk about the racially problematic aspects of Porgy and Bess and what I would also say is they were probably more enlightened um, than most of the entertaining the entertainment styles he was he was engaged in on a daily basis. So Porgy and Bess was probably uh, you know somewhat elevated in its in its take on um, on race in America and the role that black people could play um, despite the stereotypes that continued. <clears throat> um, but he was when he uh, he was uh, asked to play Sport and Life by Gershwin. It was uh, the story goes that Gershwin saw saw Buck and Bubbles uh, stage act, and he thought the Bubbles would be perfect for uh, for Sport and Life. And so he reached out and asked Bubbles if he would be willing to play that part. And Bubbles said, "On one condition, do you hire my my partner Buck too, because we don't want to split up." Because he knew that that, you know, uh, Porgy and Bess would take months, and and they would not be able to take vaudeville jobs during that time. So, uh, if they're going to stay together as an act, Buck's got to come too. So, so Gershwin hired both of them, gave Buck a a a bit part basically, and uh, and and Bubbles. um, It's funny at first he just he didn't think anything of it. He he said to me it was just another show you know it wasn't anything special just a job um but there was something going on behind the scenes that made it different and that was uh all the or most of the characters at least in porgy and best uh were played by were black characters played by black actors and singers um and they were not from vaudeville they they were classically trained they'd been to conservatories they would studied for years uh, they were opera singers, um, and they understood that world. And Buck and Bubbles didn't understood nothing of it. They didn't even read music, so they're coming in here, and uh, and uh, th- all the rest of the cast is kind of turning up their nose. According to Bubbles, they you know they didn't want to have anything to do with these low you know, who are who are coming on and sharing the stage with with these classically trained um, musicians. And so there was this tension between initially between Bubbles Buck and Bubbles and their cast their fellow ca- cast members um, and resentment that you know these vaudevillians were being brought in being paid more than everybody else and uh, because they had to be paid more because they could make a lot more money on vaudeville uh, and and you know Bubbles was he was a troublemaker on top of that. He was causing problems. He was smoking marijuana. He was doing all kinds of things. And, uh, and, and he was late coming to rehearsals. And so a lot of these, their again, their fellow castmates were resentful of them, who they were, what they stood for, the trouble they were causing. And, uh, and yet Gershwin was just, you know, iron, his loyalty to bubbles was ironclad. He, he never, uh, Gave a thought to dismissing him, uh, despite uh, you know demands of the director. I mean, not the not the director, the uh, the conductor of the orchestra, uh, and others who didn't think he belonged there. And the irony, of course, is that uh, that Porgy and Bess received rave reviews, and the and many the the leads often you know uh, came in for a lot of that praise, but. Bubbles, uh, according to my research at least, um, got the most effusive praise um, from both black and white sources. He he was just he kind of stole the show and became the star of the show. We don't often think of that when we think of Poring and best today, um, but but if you go back and read those accounts, uh, it's it's quite clear he stood out for a lot of people above all of his castmates, and when he realized how much. <laughs> you know, he was appreciated. I think he changed his tune because he came to be very proud of his his role in Porgy and Bess, and and felt you know for the rest of his life that was one of his great achievements, which it absolutely was.
1: Well, I think that is a something that happens in a lot of his performances. You often say in the book that he was he was rarely the headliner, but they were often. The one Buck and Bubbles, or Bubbles by himself, they were the ones that really came in for all the critical praise. You know, they must have been really electric on stage, which is something that it's hard for film to capture. And as you say, they really didn't have many film opportunities on top of that. And you have some, um, you do talk about their film work, however, and I'd love you for you to just talk a little bit about what they were able to do in film and sort of what kind of roles did they have? And also, why do you think they weren't able to really connect with with Hollywood very well. I mean, because certainly other Black dancers of the period were successful. Of course, Bill Robinson is the first person that comes to mind, but like the Nichols brothers and other people also, you know, really came to fame through their film work. But some buck and bubbles, not so much.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, they uh, their career changed after Porgy and Bess. Up until Porgy and Bess, they were known in vaudeville, you know. They were stars in vaudeville, but outside vaudeville, they were not well known at all. And Porgy and Bess really opened things up um, for uh, for for Bubbles, at least. Okay, like I say, Buck did not have a a key role in that in that production, uh, but for Bubbles, everything kind of changed. And and uh, he said, well, actually, there's a, a news item that that um, a black reporter says that you know. He's received fifty offers to to play in the in the, the next Black um, production on Broadway, and and Bubbles himself said, "Yeah, people came to me and asked me to asked me to appear in all their you know all their shows," and he said he he wouldn't because he would have to leave Buck, and he was not willing to do that. He he had this notion that he would only succeed as part of this duo with Buck, and and perhaps he was uh, perhaps he was acting out of loyalty as well. But in any case. Uh, after Porgy and Bess, things have changed for him. And he was billed as John W. Bubbles for the first time um, uh, for Porgy and Bess. And uh, so he's now he's got his own name. He's not just part of Buck and Bubbles, but he has his own stage name, John W. Bubbles. Um, and he's regarded as, you know, a significantly talented singer and dancer in his own right so they do get new opportunities shortly thereafter um they uh in 1937 uh, they they play in a uh, a movie called varsity show um and then uh, a few years after that they um play in another um major picture um called cabin in the sky it's an all black um movie uh 1943 and that's a, a has a famous scene uh, of bubbles dancing, not tap dancing, but but dancing and singing. Uh, and then elsewhere in the forties, they they played a few, just a few more um, uh, shows. They they did a a, a movie with um, with Danny Kay called "The Song Is Born." But in any case, they 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 appeared in several uh, a handful a handful of Hollywood films they're uh and and in all of them buck had a bit part nothing nothing more bubbles had a more prominent role in cabin in the sky um he he did play a, a more a central figure but again that was an all black film and uh and therefore it was its distribution was going to be inherently limited um, and <clears throat> but in his in their first movie varsity show um, that was a that was a uh, you know a standard white uh, Hollywood film, Warner Brothers. Most of the cast was was white. The you know the leads leads were all white. Buck and Bubbles played janitors, um, and and so they they had this kind of side role. In any case, and their their role in the story was kind of just attached on it. Did, it was not integrated into the story in any way. They had a couple of scenes. But both scenes, uh, let, you know, added up to less than five minutes in the whole show, in the whole movie. Uh, when you when you go and read Variety's review of the movie, they're not even mentioned. They're indicated in the cast, but the reviewer does not mention Buck and Bubbles. Um, and and despite the fact that uh, that you know they are able to show their stuff for a few minutes, you, you get to see Bubbles uh, tap dance. It's the first extended. Uh, opportunity to see him dancing on film, tap dancing on film, and it's great, but it's only about a minute long. Um and so the question then becomes, you know, why were they so slighted in this opening salvo in Hollywood? And why you know it took 30 1937 to 1943 to be in another movie. Um, and then all of their other white movies in the 1940s were uh, just forgettable. I mean, almost nothing. Um, and so so why were they not more prized by Hollywood? And again, it's hard to know for sure. But as you say, <clears throat> there were other black actors who were successful. Um, uh, uh, Bill Bojangles Robinson um, and Eddie Anderson, um, Step and Fetch It. Uh, and they were very successful in Hollywood. Think about the roles that they played. They played, um, they played uh, servants. They played uh, buffoon-like roles. Uh, in the case of Stephen Fetchett for sure. Um, Bilbo, Bilbo Jangles, Bilbo Robinson. When he sort of made it in Hollywood, he was, uh, you know, his hair was dusted, and he was he was portrayed as an, an aging um, uh, retainer in a you know white Southern house, and. Uh, and so they didn't pose any particular threat to the white consciousness. Bubbles, on the other hand, um, we know from accounts of his performance in Porgy and Bess, and you can you can sense it in his you know the few things that he he did in Hollywood. He was uh, he was he was a threat because he had he had he was handsome. He was young, um, and he had sex appeal. Um, And that's one of the things that they talk about again and again. People who saw Porgy and Bess and saw him in Porgy and Bess, they stress that magnetism that he had. And in 1930s and 1940s Hollywood, uh, that was a (laughs) no-go, to have uh, a Black artist, a Black actor, play a leading role that also was a romantic role, for instance. Um, that would have been unthinkable uh, at that time. And the whole idea of a Black performer um, being given a platform <clears throat> uh, to show off his, you know, his, his male magnetism in addition to everything that he was doing, um, uh, dancing wise, singing and so forth, uh, that, that simply was, uh, was anathema to Hollywood at that time. And it's interesting because uh, Pauline Kael, the great film critic, um, wrote about how she would watch Buck and Bubbles perform in San Francisco in the 1930s. And this was their vaudeville act. And the thing that she stresses was uh, was um, Bubbles' magnetism, his sex appeal. Um, and that wasn't even in, you know, that was in, in vaudeville. Uh, so you take that, you look at the reports of his appearance in Porgy and Bess. You look at his confidence in his dancing scenes in the few films that he did do. Um, and uh, it it's, it seems quite likely to me that that he was that someone in the film industry made the made the judgment that we can use him in limited ways, but we have to we have to uh, sort of draw lines around him we've got to hem him in so for instance in varsity show his big scene uh <clears throat> his his big tap dancing scene is well there's there's two of them one he's in the basement of a frat house okay where there's male students sitting around now it's interesting because there was a, 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 a kind of a, a a new sketch of the making of this movie that was published around this time, and the writer talked about how when when there was a break, um, all the girls on on the uh, uh, in the set uh, in the in the in the show rushed around and crowded around Buck and Bubbles, and you know flirting and talking back and forth and asking them to dance and and to sing and so forth. <laughs> and you don't see any of that in the movie. You know, Buck and Bubbles are are cordoned off. Um, from from the young women of the cast, uh, and so Bubbles is highlighted in this in this dance this one dance scene. <laughs> you know he's put down in the basement. Uh, you know metaphorically away from <laughs> away from everyone else in a place where only you have a few uh, a few um, male students can watch him. Um, and then the other scene is on a fantasy set. No one else is around. It's it's in this. Uh, uh, Part, part of this this Broadway show that the the, the cast was uh, bringing off right near the end. And you don't see any spectators. You don't see members of the audience. You don't see fellow cast members. It's just buck and bubbles in this, as I say, this kind of fantasy uh, uh, a performance where, again, they are cordoned off from any admiring eyes. And I'm convinced but that's that's what killed Bubbles' movie career is he was he was too attractive and, <laughs> and and that made him a threat
1: you mentioned Cabin in the Sky this 1943 all black film and you discuss that in that film he had to sing a song called Shine which has pretty racist lyrics and i thought that your description of what bubbles did in order to perform that song and still maintain his dignity and not sing some of these really racist lyrics was a fantastic example of what all black entertainers had been doing by that time for decades to kind of take this really racist, um, song, I don't know, archive of Tin Pan Alley songs and find a way to perform them that, um, was acceptable to them, and I'd love for you to tell our audience about how he he managed to change that song. Um, and so he's still singing it, but he is not singing the original version.
0: Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> initially, he says they wanted him to sing the song uh, in 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 the in the in the the, the clothes of a, a train engineer. Okay. Uh, and wearing you know coveralls and and so forth and he tried it and he said it just didn't work because it was it was too he didn't say this word but it was basically too demeaning too uh, not respectful enough of what he was trying to do and so he met with the top brass uh <coughs> uh of of uh of, of the movie studio and they agreed that they would give him a different setting. So they put him in a nightclub and he could, he could dance and, and sing in a, in a nightclub setting. And he said, okay, that's fine. But then he wanted to change the lyrics of the song because the an original verse of the song uh, is all about all these, um, these racist nicknames that white people had come up with for this particular black person. Um, and, and it goes through all of these, these nicknames and then ends up with Shine. And he, Bubbles, proposed substituting his own verse, and he had actually written out a verse. Uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't accept his, his, his particular version, but they did, uh, they did uh, accept an idea he had, which was, let me talk about um, my appearance. Okay, and so the first thing you hear him singing in that song is, what is it about me that makes me feel well-dressed? And then he goes through and he talks about his hat and his cane and all these different things. And it doesn't really work (laughs) textually because it goes from being well-dressed. That's why they call me shine, you know, so it doesn't (laughs) doesn't connect that way. But it takes the edge off and removes that very offensive opening verse. Um, and I think that's what, what Bubbles really wanted to do. And later on, uh, in the 1960s, when he sang it, he even removed the part, uh, where it says, that's where they call me shine. And he changed it to say, you'll see the whole world shine. You will you'll make the whole world shine. And so he was just eliminating that, that whole, a whole bit. But even in 1943, he was already getting rid of that. And, uh. And so when he sang it, um, and you, and you can still find this on YouTube, uh, you know, he, he, he dressed, he's dressed to the nines, you know, and he sings and dances and flirts with all the ladies at the tables and does his, does his set piece. And it's, uh, it's a stunning tour de force really of, um, of his ability to dance and portray himself <clears throat> again in this very uh, uh attractive and um and disciplined and engaging manner uh not not a manner that uh that is um you know self debasing or <clears throat> or obnoxious in that way and and i think it was very important to him to be able to Perform that was his big set piece in *Cabiness Sky, but he wanted to do it on his terms.
1: It really reminds me of Paul Robeson slowly changing the words of *Old Man River* mm-hmm. over the course of decades. Right, he kept singing it, but you, we can document that that he changed the words you know, bit by bit in order to soften some of the racist stereotypes that are present in that song as well. And, and, um, it really shows, I think bubbles as a thoughtful, you know, really, um, well, as a thoughtful performer, you know, not as someone who just goes out and dances and does whatever, right? He was very conscious of his image all the time and the image that he wanted to uh, portray in whatever he was doing. And and I, so it's a great example. It's great that, that you have the the documentation to be able to show what he did. Um, so not not too, well, I guess maybe 10-ish years, a little less than that after Cabin in the Sky, he and Buck finally break up. It's a big bust up, you know, after 36 years um they break up and uh, of course that's going to mean his career has to change quite a bit but it also is coinciding when tv is really finally coming into its own um so i'd love for you to talk about this sort of post buck and bubbles career he had and also specifically about how the role nostalgia for you know the old days really uh, boy his career boy 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 i can't say that word all of a sudden really helped his career
0: <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely yeah, it was hard um, for Bubbles after he and Buck split up. Uh, and um, I think, you know, for the first little while, first few months, he was really at loose ends <clears throat> because he, he, as you say, really did need to start from scratch. And his uh, after scrambling around a bit, he, he took a, a, an opportunity to go to Germany and he he moved to Germany and spent the next four years there, playing very very low profile and and uh, and low class jobs uh, in Germany in Central Germany, and basically just scraping by. Um, and then he got this opportunity to come back to the United States. And this was through the intermediary of his wife at the time, who's trying to bring him back. And uh, and she sent out this letter, we still have the letter, uh, to a number of, of, uh, show business fat cats, um, people who had power and influence. Um, and, and one of those people was a guy named Peter Lynn Hayes. And he was a young, handsome, talented comic singer, kind of just, um, general entertainer at the time. Uh, and he had been subbing for Arthur Godfrey's show for the last three years um, on daytime television. And he also had a big show at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas. And fortunately for Bubbles, uh, Peter Lynn Hayes just thought the world of him as an entertainer. He 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 said, you know, no exaggeration. John Bubbles is the greatest entertainer Alive today, that he would make those kinds of statements, and and apparently believed it. So when he found out that Bubbles wanted to come back to the states and sort of uh, rejuice up his career, uh, he reached out to him and he brought him back, and he made him part of his his uh, his show in in Las Vegas, <clears throat> and he uh, put him on the the Arthur Godfrey Show, and then shortly thereafter, Peter Lind Hayes got his own show. Um, for uh, a year or so, uh, again daytime television, and he made Bubbles an integral part of that show for the first few months. Bubbles was on, I think, every day, Monday through Friday, um, <clears throat> uh, and then and then less. But but uh, but uh, Hayes used him over and over and over again in all kinds of different uh, situations, and. Uh, by uh, allowing bubbles to get back on television, um, you know, other entertainers were able to see him and take advantage of him as, of him as well. So you have, you know, Steve Allen um, brings him on his show. You've got, uh, um, uh, who's <laughs> getting too old here? Uh, oh, Perry Como brings him on his show. Judy Garland sees him on TV and she nabs him for her, one of her comeback tours. Um, and so it's really through Peter Lynn Hayes and um, uh, and his enthusiasm about bubbles that helped bubbles make this shift, right, from, from this sort of old, um, decrepit, uh, vestige of vaudeville that he he was sort of forced to undergo in Europe, and come back and and get with the latest medium, right? Get with get on television, and it was a little bumpy. Uh, after the after the initial um, <coughs> success, he uh, had some tough times there in the late 50s and early 60s, but then <laughs> he was uh, again through through the uh, influence of Peter Lind Hayes he got a chance to be on the Johnny Carson show. And that's what really, really um, put him on the television map in the 1960s because he, he appeared um, dozens of times on the Carson show. And Johnny Carson's Tonight Show in the 1960s was the most important show on television. Um, and, <clears throat> and that just opened up all kinds of opportunities um, for Bubbles to work with, you know, um, Bob Hope and... Um, and uh, again, Judy Garland a little bit later, uh, a woman named Anna Maria Alberghetti, and a number of um, important people um, in the 1960s. And he really, you know, he he uh, had a pretty amazingly successful comeback um, after being all, all but forgotten and left for dead in the early early fifties. And it was was really through the medium of television.
1: So was he basically still doing his same act um, and the same kind (laughs) of dancing, or did you think that he was sort of updating things um, or was this more a a feel, sort of a, a way that um, these performers were, I don't know, I guess um, appealing to maybe an older audience that remembered bubbles from vaudeville.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. So you've got, There's there's two things happening as I see it. Um, on the one hand, he did have to change his act, you know, because he doesn't have his foil anymore. He doesn't have Buck. Um, so when he did his, his nightclub act, his solo act, uh, he he would come out and do basically his greatest hits. So he would do "It Ain't Necessarily So" from Porgy and Bess, and he would do the you know "Shine" from A uh, Cabin in the Sky. Those were his two. Biggies, and then he he might uh, round it up uh, with "Lady Be Good" or something like that. But he might have three or four different numbers as part of his uh, as part of his nightclub act, um, <clears throat> uh, or at least for a set of his nightclub act. And he would tell jokes, but they were they were going to be a little obviously a little bit different from the kinds of jokes that he was telling with Buck, um, both because times are changing and and because it's a just a different sort of uh, sort of situation when you're a, a solo uh, stand-up comic, as it were, versus the the the, the banter between two two partners. So you've got that on the one hand, but then you also have um, you have people like Peter Lind Hayes uh, <clears throat> and Judy Garland who are wanting um, wanting Bubbles to perform the old sketches that he used to do with Buck. Um, with all with all the the racial racial stereotypes and so forth, and so Bubbles was also reenacting these old routines. And one of the really interesting things that you see uh, going through the, his archive at BYU uh, is how fan letters would be coming in in the late nineteen fifties. People who had known Buck and Bubbles in vaudeville, and then you know wondered what had happened to them. And then they see Bubbles showing up here on television and performing an old Buck and Bubbles routine with Peter Lynn Hayes, and they just love it. And they're sending these fan, le- fan letters and saying how wonderful it is to hear those old songs again, to hear those jokes. Uh, it takes me back to your old routines in vaudeville. And, and in, indeed, um, his, his value as, you know, as a purveyor of nostalgia uh, that was probably his key drawing card in those years, in the late 50s and 60s, was that here was a relic of old time show business in the United States. And it was it was the middle, uh, middle, uh, middle aged and a little bit older aged uh, patrons who who loved who seemed to have loved him the most for that reason.
1: Um so we're sort of coming to the end of this interview, but I wanted to wrap up our discussion of the book with the other with another theme that runs through the whole book that I thought was really important and might be a way to sort of cap off everything you've talked about, and that is the his sort of forced interaction with um, the entertainment industry and the way in which it really disadvantaged black performers. Um, both because the the industry was segregated, because for most of his career, he was working in segregated America with legalized segregation, but also just the ways that um, management worked and the sort of power differential between white management and black performers was a constant impediment in Mm -hmm. his career. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could sort of you know, think about and looking back on his career as a whole, what do you see as the sort of challenges that he had to deal with? um, And and how did he respond to those challenges?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, it's like occasionally you you hear from, you know, Black families, uh, how their children are are raised, um, particularly in the 20th century, um, and taught by their parents you need to be twice as good as your white competitors, you know, to get any job, you, you need to be two or three times as good in order to be valued at the same level. Um, and Bubbles was completely of that mindset. And he talked a lot about how, you know, I have to be four times as good as Fred Astaire. I have to sing three times as, as good as Frank Sinatra, you know? Um, and he, he did believe that he felt that, you know where where his white um, colleagues in show business, um, you know they they had room to make mistakes, regroup, retool, try again. Uh, there was no room for error, for buck and bubbles. They had to be perfect, <laughs> and uh, and you know they they couldn't falter ever, uh, or or else they would not be able to to maintain even the you know the the minimalist level of success that they had. And I say that because, uh, one of the big crisis, crisis, crises of his life, uh, was shortly after that lesson he gave to Fred Astaire in 1930, it was 1931 actually, because <clears throat> for 10 years, Buck and Bubbles had been playing in vaudeville and, um, and you, you one of the fascinating things about writing this book was to read the newspaper accounts and see, as you, you've already mentioned, Kristen, um, that, you know, they wouldn't be the headliners, but they were praised more than the headliners were over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And you think, wow, what's going on here um, by the critics? And so by the time we get to 1931, uh. Bubbles is basically discouraged uh, because he and Buck uh, still aren't given um, any kind of, any kind of consistent headline status. They're not appreciated. Um, they're not being paid th- th- this at the same rate. And and he yeah like I said he became discouraged, and he swore that you know got this this show coming up at uh, Low State in New York, and. If they don't put my name up in lights, I'm done. I'm out of show business. And this is one of the miracles of his life. He wakes up the next morning, walks to Low State, and there it is, Buck and Bubbles, up in up in lights. And he he really did conceive of that as you know as a divine blessing, as a as a miracle that had been given to him, maybe giving him a little nudge. Don't give up. Keep at it. Right. But but the, you know. The, this is where he is in the early nineteen thirties. He and, and Buck uh, um, later in in the year got a chance to pr- perform at the Ziegfeld Follies. And again, by all accounts, uh, I shouldn't say all accounts by by, uh, by the accounts of black newspapers and local newspapers, uh, they stole the show. But the but the 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 white Critical press basically completely ignored them. And so, you know, there's this there's this feeling like, you no, know, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, um, even when the critics are saying in print that we're the best on the bill, we're not getting the, uh, the rewards that are due to us as hardworking vaudevillians, you know, doing the same, working in the same industry as our white colleagues and that was something that uh that he he did indeed have have to deal with throughout his career it happened again when he and buck um broke into television that they were actually in, in television um uh, before uh before they broke up and their first few appearances on television again were praised to the skies and yet they were not able to launch a television career at that point because you know, uh, uh, a show on television could only have um, you know one black act for the whole show, um, and there's just not enough not enough shows when you've got you know a limited number of channels for a black act to be able to um, to make a career in television the way you know uh, the way white performers were able to at that time in the late 40s, and early 50s. They were able to, you know, move from radio into this new medium and, you know, forge ahead. And Buck and Bubbles, despite their their talent and their ability, and clearly their ability to please, were not given that, that basic security of a steady job in this new medium. Um, and it wasn't, again, until a little bit later uh, when he was able to establish himself as a source of, you know, uh, fond nostalgia, that that he he was, and and with uh, it should be said with with some uh, some significant help <clears throat> from white veterans of the entertainment industry um, who also wanted to um, bring him bring him back before the public, but even under those circumstances, he was he always felt limited and felt that there's always a ceiling. No matter how well he did. And that was, I think, the great frustration of his life.
1: He had a very tumultuous private life. He drank, he gambled, he was a womanizer, he had lots of wives, which I don't think he treated very well. Children he didn't treat very well. Do you think that this sort of constant frustration and feeling that, you know, there was only so far he could go, do you think that was? Um, one reason, or maybe the main reason, that he his he just couldn't keep his private life together, or do you think that that that's too much of a kind of easy excuse for for his many uh, personal difficulties?
0: Right. No, I think it's definitely connected. I don't think there's. I, I think you know, um, his uh, he had a girlfriend in the nineteen sixties who said that when he got done performing he would be irritable and, and, and um, I, what was her, her word cross? I think, you know, and you think, wow, you've just been on stage. You've just been applauded. But with every performance he was reminded based by the content that he was required to, to use in his performance. And by the fact that he had to play second fiddle to all of these leading white, white actors, even, ones that didn't have his experience or <laughs> his talent, okay? he come home from that and he was mad, you know? And we know that he did take that out on, on some of, of his female companions and wives. Um, so we know that. Uh, I don't think there's much question that his personal failings were deeply bound up in that, that constant frustration of his, of his role as a black entertainer. Uh, And then I think we also have to recognize um, that he came from a very tough childhood. Um, And, you know, we take for granted that, you know, abuse in childhood leads to abuse later on. Um, And he told one of his wives that his father would, you know, beat his mother uh, and then make love to her. Um, But it sounds you know, from from this vantage point, like spousal rape, it sounds like it's all part of this, uh, this constant um, reiteration, this pattern uh, of abuse that his father um, heaped on his mother. And Bubbles adored his mother, worshipped his mother, uh, and I, I, I can only imagine that that having to witness that again and again and again as a child uh, would plant you know, terrible poisonous seeds later on that would come out in his own behavior. Now, you know, I'm not a psychologist. It's hard to know about those kinds of things, uh, you know, in a, in a definitive way. But, but I, I, I believe that that both of those elements um, affected his personal um, habits.
1: Well, I think you've done a great job in this book, sort of um, not, Pathologizing the way that he acted, but but also not ignoring that he clearly had a lot of personal demons that um, that affected everybody else around him and that were, um, you know, a lot of that had to do with with the industry and the ways that, um, his career could never be quite what he wanted it to be. This is, it's it really is a, a, a wonderful book and easy read, which is nice, you know, and, and it's just, um, uh, I, I hope that our conversation today will inspire some people to go out and read the whole thing, because of course there's plenty of things we couldn't really, um, get to, but now that you're finished with this big project, what are you working on now?
0: uh back to miles davis <laughs> i'm i'm going to pick up where i left off um i'm actually just getting into it right now i'm uh writing a biography of miles davis who's always been a great hero to me um and uh i'm an old trumpet player from way back so so i gravitate to to these these topics quite readily and i'll feel much more confident writing about miles davis than, <laughs> than i did writing about bubbles uh, but Bubbles was a blast. I never had more fun writing.
1: Well, I look forward to reading that book as well when it comes out. <laughs> okay, thank, um, you. thank you so much for joining me today. Um, my name is Kristen Turner for New Books and Music, a part of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Brian Harker, author of Sport and Life John W. Bubbles, an American Classic, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.